This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oro Recovery. Yes, Oro Recovery. Aloe changed its name to Oro, but it's still the same place. Still the same amazing rehab founded by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission still to treat addiction and alcoholism with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure you're kicking, your detox is as comfortable as possible, which we all know is the best way to detox. A bad detox is not no bueno. Aloe says their detox will be a more comfortable detox, and I believe them. We've had friends that have gone there, and they vouch for aloe. They also have incredible amenities, including surfing, equine therapy, sound bath meditation, and my favorite, the potentially spiritual transformative sweat lodge. So if you're fucked and you want some help and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I totally suggest going to Oro. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Knockin' Doors Down Podcast, new sponsor. Knocking Doors Down is a podcast with the mission to end the stigma around addiction and mental health with humorous, honest, and vulnerable conversations featuring guests, celebrities, experts, and everyday people. Celebrity guests sharing their stories of addiction and mental health issues include Charlie Sheen, Kelly Osbourne, AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys, Butch Patrick from the Munsters, the Nature Boy Ric Flair, Kurt Angle, Mike the Situation Sorrentino, Lamar Odom, Scott Stapp from Creed, Brandon Novak, and so many more. It is hosted by Jason, who is in recovery for addiction, deals with childhood trauma, sexual trauma, and a family lineage of addiction. Co-hosted by Mikey, who struggles with substance abuse and mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. I was on the show, and our episode premieres on October 11th. Check them out. Knocking Doors Down is available on Apple, Spotify, or iHeart, or wherever you get podcasts and full videos on YouTube by going to kddpodcast.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Evolution Accounting and Consulting, a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. 
They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. Perhaps more than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now, and he knows the struggle as well as the success. Use the promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. That's www.evolution-accounting.com. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave, and I just have to say, every time I make the show and I put that music in and I listen to that music, it takes me back to when we recorded that thing. And I never, and like, it's the big, you know, it's the big Dopey theme song. And the song is called, If I'm Not Home, I'm Out Walking Around. And we recorded it in like, I want to say 1998 in Porchester, New York, and uh, at my friend's studio. And now it's like this big-time podcast theme song. And back then I was on heroin, and we recorded that song, and like we never would have imagined it would be the theme song for the most important addiction and recovery whatever drug podcast in the world. But it is. It finally arrived. I'm exhausted. I'm at my dad's house. Yesterday, I... Uh, I, I, I the podcast finally earned its weight in gold or weight in salt or whatever the expression is. There's a big time dopey fan named Maddie. I'll just say Maddie V and Maddie V is a guitar tech for Anders Osborne. And if you're a crazy dopey fan, you know, or if you're a music fan, you know who Anders Osborne is. He was, uh, he was on an episode of dopey and then he was on DopeyCon too. He did a song and Maddie V is his guitar tech, and and that's not how we got Anders on, but somehow I got in touch with Maddie over the years, and he invited me and Linda to go to the Beacon Theater last night and see Anders Osborne and to see the Tedeschi Trucks Band. Now, in order to accomplish that, I had to I had to be at Katz's at eight in the morning. So I drove in, takes three fucking hours. I woke up at 4.30, left the house at 5, parked the car at the Beacon Theater. Now, I don't know how much would you imagine it would cost to park a car at a parking lot from 8 in the morning to 11 at night. How much would you guess? It was $79. But we had free tickets, whatever, parked the car, go to Katz's, made some orders, fucking went to a meeting, not, not a 12 step meeting. I went to a meeting with a guy from Madison square garden network. Who's excited about working with Katz's recorded dopey, did some more shit, did some more work, met up with Linda, had dinner, went to see Anders Osborne and the Tedeschi trucks group. It's pretty fucking amazing show, crazy musicianship. But I wanted it to be like this big deal. Like when I got there, they'd be like, oh my God, it's Dave from Dopey and his beautiful partner. 
but they didn't. They had my name misspelled on the fucking tickets. We were supposed to get backstage laminates, which they didn't give us. And they wouldn't even let me bring my book bag in. They told me to, I had a backpack, which I always have with my, with my laptop in it. And they were like, I'm sorry, you can't bring your laptop in here. And it's like, why can't you bring a laptop to a concert? If everyone has a phone, the phone is like, my, my iPhone is better than my old laptop. I can't believe, so they were like, you have to take, he said, you have to take the bag to a bar on 79th Street where they have a bin which serves as the, as the, the storage for the Beacon Theater. I couldn't believe such a thing. But because I had parked the car next door, I just took the bag to the car. We went to the show. We had a lot of fun. I'm hearing my breathing on the mic. It's making me crazy. I don't know if you guys are paying attention to these Patreon videos, but I have this friend named Howie who's trying to turn Dopey into this YouTube channel. And I think he's fucked with the the settings on the roadcaster. And now all I can hear is me <sighs> breathing like I have COPD when in fact my lungs are incredible. Anyway, I dropped the fucking bag off. We went back to the show. Our tickets, I wanted, I thought we'd have some crazy tickets because I'm such a podcasting legend, but we didn't. We were in the lower balcony, which was still the best tickets I ever had at the Beacon. It was fun. And, and fucking Anders Osborne, high octane rock and roll show, Tedeschi Trucks, crazy musicianship. Like Derek Trucks is obviously one of the greatest guitar players out there. And Susan Tedeschi is one of the greatest guitar players out there. I didn't realize she was such a sick guitar player, but we had a lot of fun. So I want to thank Maddie V for hooking it up. But the, the other thing is that I was so tired after that day is I fell asleep during the show. I fell asleep during like the fucking finale of the show. I just passed out. I like nodded off and um, I woke up and the show was over and we drove home and then I woke up at four in the morning again to go cater an event at Amazon. That is the kind of life I'm living. Crazy, crazy, crazy amounts of work. But as I like to say, there's a lot going on with Dopey. A lot of stuff happening. If you haven't been to Patreon, go to Patreon. Check it out. www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. There's videos. There's music. There's old clips with Chris. My dad is on there. There's, there's the last Jewish waiter never before seen sizzle reel. Go check it out. Also, buy some Dopey merch. Listen, I don't tell anybody this, but I'm going to quit my job next September. But the only way that I can quit my job is if I build the raft of Dopey to be formidable enough that I can sail away on it. So help me sail away. Help me help me make Dopey the professional fucking juggernaut it's meant to be. Go to the Patreon, buy the merch. We have the new Dopey Frankenstein t-shirt. We still have a few of those Dopey Dead amalgams. There's cool shit coming out. It's at dopeypodcast.com. I have way too many trucker hats. Throw me a bone, buy a trucker hat. I'll post some more pictures if you, if you want one. If you don't, don't worry about it. Everything is going to be fine. I got the new sock prototype, so that's very exciting. But enough enough advertising. Sorry, advertising in the show because I, I have a feeling it's going to be more effective. But we have a really, 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 really dynamically interesting show today. We have the incredibly controversial Dr. Carl Hart, who, of course, wrote the book, drug use for grownups. I've been trying to get him on for like six months. And then we have Aaron Carr, author and journalist and advice columnist who comes on to do a little Ask Aaron. It's a very exciting show. 
Stand by. But before we get to Dr. Carl Hart, we have to say that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast because life is full of stressors. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Your life is probably stressful. Listen to how stressful my life is. It's ridiculous. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and dopey listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash podcast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash podcast. Now, here he is, the good doctor, Dr. Carl Hart. And I've been pursuing our guest for a long... I've been pursuing you for a long time, sir. A long time. His name is Dr. Carl Hart. He wrote a book that I just finished called Drug Use for Grownups. It's pretty fucking wild. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Dave, man. And I didn't know you were pursuing me for a long time, but... Um... Yeah, that's probably because uh, I don't know how to do social media. Maybe I'm just bad at pursuing you. <laughs> it's one or the other. <laughs> Maybe my pursuit is not as, as good as I would like it to be. I have to say the book, it, it blows me away and it like fucks with me at the same time. Okay. It blows me away because um, it's a lot of it is about the positive effects of drugs, you know, and uh, which is like, kind of the antithesis to the dialogue we get in the media or in the mainstream culture. And I know as a drug addict, I love drugs. And one thing that me and Chris always would talk about, like when we first met, we met in rehab. And I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if there was a rehab where we could use everything instead of a place we have to go to not use? And that's what the book kind of reminded me of. Like you go through each substance and the, the upside to all of them. And like, first thing I want to know is like, you're a, a PhD, psychologist, author, speaker, scientist. When did you get interested in drugs in general? Uh, maybe in the 80s. You, you, you might remember in the 1980s when people were uh, going crazy about crack. Um, and so I got interested in, in drugs like, uh, 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 I guess, Pee Wee Herman struck a chord and Nancy Reagan struck a chord uh, when they were saying, just say no. You know, so I was probably one of the moralists. I, I, I thought that, you know, like saying no to drugs meant that you were more virtuous. And that's when I got interested. And that's when I started studying drugs to try and figure out why people became addicted uh, from a neurobiological perspective. And, and so um, so the eighties, I mean, I, I, I did a lot of science work. Um, and, and then, um, I realized after I had a PhD, um, that I was actually ignorant. <laughs> I, I was a drug expert, but knew, knew jack shit about drugs. So what I am really interested in that moment, you have a PhD in drugs, you wanted to figure out the neurobiology of drugs. So what was, when did you take that leap to be like, to experiment on yourself kind of thing? 
Well, so uh, doing my PhD, um, I, I did part of it at the National Institutes of Health in uh, DC. And they used to bring young kids through the lab to uh, check out uh, what we were doing. Um, and the kids used to ask me questions about why their loved one was addicted to some drug, typically crack or something. And I realized I didn't know anything. Um, and then, uh, you know, people would have uh, uh, little cocaine here, some weed here, and um, um, you know how it is in middle-class spaces. There's always drugs around, um, uh, but nobody really talks about it. And so I was dabbling, doing uh, some dabbling um, as a 30-year-old, as a but not much. But then when I hit like 40 um, and mid, late 40s, I realized that I was, I was, um, I was really still pretty ignorant. And I had opportunities. I traveled around the world, um, like Colombia, uh, South America, where cocaine-producing countries. Why not do some cocaine in a cocaine-producing country? Or uh, near uh, uh, opioid-producing country, why not do some opioids in um, those, those places? And then uh, turns out um, those drugs are, are really good uh, in those kind of spaces and um, uh, people just uh, do it like you caffeine. It's not this big deal. Uh, and so when you take away all the romality and, and, and the emotionality out of it, it becomes, uh, it's just an activity that you do with your friends. And then when you do this with your loved one, uh, particularly some special person in your life, like my wife, and, and, and then it's like, it's even better. Um, you're not hiding, you're not doing those kind of things. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, we somehow forwent our responsibilities. It just actually kind of took the relationship to a different level. And um, But that was, like I said, late 40s, 50s. Um, um, I'm an adult. Uh, our children are nearly, were nearly grown. Um, uh, and then so I did not start to ask the question like, why do we have uh, these sort of restrictions placed on adults on this behavior when it could be such a positive thing? Right. Um, what was the first one? Like first time you were in Colombia, like when were you like, fuck it, I'm going to do this? Like, like this is the origin story. It's like you're Spider-Man and you got bit by the radioactive spider. Like when did you take the leap of faith and were like, I'm going to actually try this. I want to see what this is about. I'm sure it was like, it was after 2013 um, and um, it was not a big deal, quite frankly, man. It was just like, oh, everybody's doing this. Cool. Um, oh, that was nice. That, in fact, that was lovely. You got any more of that? You know, and then it was over. Um, it was just over. You go back to your life and doing what you do. Um, um, I, I think MDMA might have been probably uh, um a more sort of uh, earth-shaking or changing kind of thing because you uh, you do that, uh, or at least I did with my wife, and it was um, yeah, it was one of those situations where uh, uh, we both were like, oh fuck, uh, life can be kind of good, and you ain't so bad yourself. So that was kind of cool. That is incredibly cool. I mean, uh, I remember the first time I did MDMA, and like I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe something like that existed. Um, and I couldn't believe how it made me feel. 
I felt the same way about heroin. Like the way you write about heroin is how I felt about heroin in the very beginning. You have a lot of beautiful things you've written about heroin. I want to read one of them to you. The last one. Because you talk about heroin as a very, uh, almost a sympathetic drug that you can feel uh, this sort of like, uh, like what's the word? Introspection. Like people don't talk about that around heroin. And you talk about it in this very, very beautiful way. You say, I'm going to read this because I really enjoyed it, but it also fucked me up. Um, let's see, where can I find it? I'm, I'm so, now I'm, I'm annoyed at myself. I can't find it. Fuck. Uh, well, we got time, man, so take your time. I appreciate that. Jesus, man, I just had it. Oh, man. You say... Fuck me. Hold on for one sec, doctor. Forgive me. Forgive me. It's very embarrassing. It's very embarrassing. Just hold, hold on. You say... Yo, man, you you with family. There's no reason. Thank you, sir. When heroin binds to my opioid receptors in, in my brain, I lay my burden as well as my sword and shield just... Uh, down by the riverside just as described by the negro spiritual song down by the riverside and that when there's nothing you like more than doing a few lines of heroin by the fire it's like holy shit like i that's amazing in itself that you're willing to put it out there like that in this world right of of because first let's deal with that let's deal with the the beneficial aspect of heroin before i go to the other side of it can we just deal with that for a second, that quote that you just said? You know, you, you know, I wrote it because of people like you. And like all of the interviews that I've done so far for the book, nobody pulls out shit like that. And, you, you know, so the book is really about love and teaching us to be better people. And that's what, like, heroin does for me. It makes me uh, be more understanding of other people. And um, particularly uh, like with this book tour, there has been like, it's been this bifurcation. There have been those people who really are feeling it like you. And then there are other cats or other people who are like really judgmental, acting as if I've insulted their mother by just saying what my experiences are. And so, um, uh, but for the most part, people in the media, um, uh, like what I like to say is that I hate fucking being judged by dorks, uncool people. And those are the people who are in the media um, for the most part. And, and, and this is not to say that, um, uh, that like people who are, uh, who are dorks are bad. That's not to say that. It's to say that if you're not hip or cool, that's okay. But don't fucking judge other people just because you don't understand. That's what, that's what I mean. Um, just like we shouldn't be judging like dorks or nerds or whatever. We shouldn't be harshly judging people like that. But um, so the media is predominantly um, staffed by people who are uncool. And then they're talking or making judgments about a person like me, who like all of my life, I've been cool or I've been with the cool kids. And that's a fact. And so it's like, what the fuck? Uh, it's, it's like having people, uh, uh, aliens, uh, comment on, on humans and, 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 and vice versa without understanding who, you, who you're talking about. And so like 
that quote um, that you pull out or the way that you uh, see how I describe heroin helps me to feel more compassionate about those people that frustrate the fuck out of me. Well, I think that's something that I was really thinking about a lot, that you're on this book tour or you're talking to all this mainstream people who don't know what it means when heroin makes you feel like you lay your sword and your shield down by the riverside. It's a real thing. Or like even when you bring any kind of drug experience to a mainstream person and you have to like talk about liberty and substances. It's like when you come to a show like Dopey, like we're just drug addicts. So you know what I'm saying? So like, I think the purity of the message is, is incredibly valuable where I get confused and scared and jealous. All those things at the same time is like, for me, I got that exact feeling from heroin. Like I got that wonderful feeling only for me, like you, I've heard you write, write about it and I've heard you talk about it, that you would never do dope like and catch the nod. Whereas like if I didn't catch the nod, I didn't feel like I was doing dope correctly. And I heard you even say that it's the opposite. But for me, I like, you know, that's the real question. It's like, and that's why people give you shit. And I'm not trying to give you shit. I'm interested, like, where's the line and what happens to somebody like me? Uh in, in, in your opinion or through psychology, like, and through being a doctor in this world, when all of these people, like all of my people didn't get to do a few lines here and there, they fucking fell in. And I don't know anybody that could do a little bit of heroin and not wind up where I wound up. Well, you know me. I do. So, you, you know, yeah. And so the point is, right. Um, I am a person who is hyper responsible and I am uh, also very uh, uh, regimented. And so um, you don't get to be a PhD, a 10 year professor at Columbia without being hyper regimented right. and responsible and so forth. And so when people uh, say, well, I couldn't do that, it's like, I don't, you know, it's like, can you do a PhD? Can you be in this space too? And so all of that comes to bear here. Um, and, and then when you, you talk about the nod, like um, I intentionally keep all my drug doses lower because it's fucking cheaper. Not only that, it's better for me when I, um, when I want to get like a nice bang for my buck. Um, um, so I, I take, I take holidays. I take uh, a lot of holidays uh, and it's a special moment when I do my thing. Um, and so it, it's like, it doesn't define me. Like my drug use does not define me. The thing that defines me is um, live and let live for everyone. Um, and I don't assume that my experiences, for example, um, uh, are identical to other people's experiences. But what I do know is that I am in control of, 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 of my situation for the most part, where I can. Um, uh, I try my best to control it. And I am, um, you know, I'm hypervigilant. I'm a, I'm a fucking black man in the United States. Yes. And so I have to be hypervigilant and um, always knowing what's going on around in my society, uh, in my environment. And, you know, some people say, well, you're paranoia, call it what you will. But, um, uh, these are the skills that I've used in order to survive in this society. Well, you know what they say, just cause you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. 
right? Oh, I know they're after me, so. <laughs> right. Um, and I appreciate that. And, it, and when I hear you say hypervigilant, like that's the kind of talk I talk about in my recovery. Like I was not hypervigilant in my life. I was a mess. I did not protect anything I had. And then I fell in love with heroin. And like one thing I read in the book that also really interested me was your experiment around withdrawal because you wanted to understand what withdrawal was. So you decided, yeah. and you had a, you had a bottle of, of morphine and you were like, this should, this should work. Right. So you, you took, you took the drug for what was it? Three or four weeks, something like that, 30 days. And then you kicked. Yeah. And, um, and I think it was interesting the way you described it. Cause you talked about like the thing that really caught me about it was like, you were like, I, it's kind of like the classic shit, like flu symptoms, diarrhea. You had that pain, which was which was acute and, and interesting. But the thing that you said that really like, I don't know, it sparked something in me is when you said in terms of the craving, I could take it or leave it. That's what you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I said. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think, but that's exactly. Okay. No, and there's nothing wrong with that because like what you just said, I agree with too. It's like. However, it's, it affects you or it affects me. Like, I totally agree with you. I had the same exact experience around the withdrawal with the physicality. There was more, some pain here, more pain there. But the craving for me was like, I couldn't deal with it. I, couldn't, I could not handle the craving. And, uh, and that's why I was around this shit for so long. I guess there's no question. Yeah, you know... Um- <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't uh, yeah, know what to say, really. Um, I think I've had a lot more craving for just drugs in general during the pandemic because we all have been kind of locked down. Uh, but again, craving is not a big deal in my life. It's like, OK, if I can't have it, I can't have it. Move the fuck on. That's how I deal with myself. Um, and that's uh, that's part of my discipline. Totally. When you're in this world, like in this world of, of research and drugs and science, and obviously, let's forget like the, the catchphrase of opioid epidemic and all that stuff. But when you're dealing with like a community of, of drug addicts and they come at you with how can you say this? Like, how do you make how do you put the two things together that someone who, who can't do heroin every day? Like, like, I guess you just did. It's a live and let live situation. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't do anything uh, every day besides breathe and eat probably the same thing. And and so, like, if people are saying, like, well, my experiences are different than yours, um, you know, that, that's true. That's right. And there are reasons um, that people's experiences are different. And if somebody wants me to help them to understand how they are different and how we they, they want to change or not, that's cool. I'm willing to do that kind of thing. But um, it's not a surprise that the experiences are different. And as a researcher, like you get I'm always the first thing that I really want to know is like, where do you get the good dope? Like what happens? Do you go to some government spot and it's got like an American flag stamped on the bag? Like, what does it look like? What do you mean, man? I uh, <laughs> What do you mean? No, I mean, like, like I think I read like that some of it like is provided by like labs because you're a researcher. No, that's not. I didn't get that. You you mean that you mean like in research? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like in research. You 
pharmacology, I mean, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, I mean, you order cocaine just like you would order, I don't know, uh, some other prescription medication from a pharmaceutical company. Heroin is legal in in, in Europe. And so um, there are pharmaceutical companies that make heroin. Uh, Methamphetamine is legal in the United States for prescription. Uh, Even cocaine is uh, medication that is used in the United States. And so there are pharmaceutical companies that make these drugs. Right. And so they just sending you pills. They send you like with dope, they send you powder. Like, what does it look like as a, as a, a heroin addict? What does it look like? like? Uh, yeah. So it's, it's powder. Um, the, the heroin is powder and, um, the, uh, the pharmacist, uh, dilutes it. Um, and, um, does up the dose, uh, but yeah, whereas cocaine too, it's powder. Um, uh, some drugs are pill form, but those two drugs are powder. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. As a person that used to go get drugs, I'd get like bags and it would have stamps and this and that. So my imagination wants to know like, does it come in a vial? Does it come in a lit? Like, what does it, does it look like what you get at the pharmacy? Uh, like, what does it look like? I'm just curious. Well, so something like heroin would come in like um, a, a, a bottle, a big bottle, just powder, and then you would inject the fluid in there to dissolve it a certain amount, or the, not you, but the pharmacist would do that. And then they would just take out the amount that they need to take out for that patient or that research participant for the day or for um, this session or what have you. Nice. It's very interesting to me. And then I know also you did some work in Switzerland working in these heroin clinics, which I find to be so fascinating. And when drug addicts show up in a Swiss clinic, do they hang out all day? Yeah, no. So people, let, let's just let's just talk about the folks who are in the heroin clinic. Um, most of them work. So they come uh, in the seven o'clock hour, for example, twice a day to seven o'clock hour. And they come also at the five o'clock in the evening hour. Um, They come, get their injection and may hang out for a few minutes or what have you. uh, And then they're out. They have to they go to work for the day or whatever they do for the day. And then they come back in the evening. Uh, they may hang out and wait and talk to other friends who are also a part of the clinic. Um, they may do a wide range of things, but it's just like a normal activity. It's not a, it's not a big deal. They're not showing up to get high. They're showing up to get their dose and be on their way. They're not like chilling and watching TV and getting high and nodding out with a cigarette in their hand. Nah, um, you you know. So uh, many of these people have been in in the clinic for a number of years. So. That's just so most uh, the average sort of dose that they may be uh, getting the hit is like 500 milligram, half a gram, right? And um, some of them bring their alcohol, some of them do whatever, um, but they do their thing and then they bounce typically because they maybe they go they're going somewhere else to chill um, at the work that is, um, but. Uh, yeah, they're not hanging out in the clinic per se. That because the clinic is just a place that they get their 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 drug. Because as a heroin addict, when I would read about Switzerland's heroin clinics, you get a fantasy in your head. Because obviously, in America, in New York, you're running to a spot. You have to meet some sketchy person, and who knows what you're getting. And then you hear about these countries where they treat the drug, uh, the drug addiction with the drug, and you're trying to imagine 
what that would be like. I heard you on, on Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan asked you, uh, what do you think about rehab? And you said, well, if I had a loved one who had a, a drug problem, I would send them to Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like some of the questions that you're asking about the Swiss program, for example, uh, I, I guess sometimes I, I get a little uh, worried, uh, too, because the Swiss are just practical people. And they think of this as just a, a medicine and people we're, we're helping uh, to make people feel better. That's it. Uh, whereas Americans bring all this bullshit to this conversation. Um, and because we don't know what practicality is or freedom really is. Um, and so it's not a big deal. You know, like heroin is a drug, just like caffeine is. A, I was just drinking my caffeine. We're not having a long conversation about the thing that I was just drinking. So why the fuck are we like acting like heroin is so different? We're acting like that because in the United States, we treat it like that. Um, but that has less to do with the pharmacology of heroin and more to do with our social bullshit in this country. Uh, and so um, um, it's, it's sometimes kind of frustrating to have the remedial conversations. Like the United States is not the way um, we are not, we should not be teaching people how to live because we don't know how to live. We don't know how to treat people. Um, um, so it's a, it's, it's a little disconcerting to have to come back to this bullshit. They're like, I told you, I just came back from Switzerland. And so, um, now you're asking me to think like a fucking child again. And it's hard. No, no. I'm, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to think like a child. And the thing that I like about, I'm just trying to be honest and, and share like my own personal thoughts around this thing because it was no, so. No, 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 it, it, no, no. It, it's not, it's not you. No, it's not you. I mean, these are good questions for the American audience. I get it. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that it's just hard for me, you know, to like, okay, I got to step back into this bullshit. Well, That's the, it. the coolest thing about the Swiss system in my mind is it's un, unabridged compassion. It's like they want to take care of their people. They want to make sure their people don't get bad shit. They want to make sure their people aren't dropping dead. They're not getting AIDS. They're not getting hep C. It's about compassion. You know what I mean? It's a very simple thing, right? Isn't that the, the root of their whole plan? Yes, and we don't have a compassionate yeah, system it, here, you know? Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the Swiss are not perfect. So I don't want, I don't want to send that message either. Um, they have their own issues, uh, but they, they are at least practical. Uh, in the United States, I guess we, you can say we are practical, but the ends towards which we are practical, they differ uh, in that in the United States, we are practical in that, we use drugs as a tool to support certain sort of uh, um, uh, groups in our society. The media, law enforcement, uh, drug treatment, all of those people we use drugs for. And then at the expense of people who are using drugs. And so that's practical in that when the jobs leave places like West Virginia, Michigan, Ohio, you replace them with drug treatment bullshit, with the low paying jobs, law enforcement, low paying jobs. 
that are predicated on the sort of imprisonment of certain other bodies, the people who are using drugs. And so I guess that's practical, but that's wicked practical in my mind. And that's what we do in the United States. Whereas the Swiss, they don't do that kind of wicked practicality. Their practicality is to try to serve the, the, the greater benefit of the society. And in the, in the United States, we know we're taking advantage of people who use drugs. And the people who use drugs oftentimes are active participants in that bullshit by upholding many of the stereotypes about drugs. And so they blame drugs, too, just like the law enforcement personnel, just like the, the politicians. And, it, and, and they're both equally fucking wrong. And, and it. it and they don't understand, like the people who use drugs oftentimes don't understand that they're being used like pawns in this in this whole scheme of things um, by the media, by the politicians, by all of these folks. And so that's why I wrote the book to try to like uh, uh, help people to understand. Uh, and, and the people who use drugs, too, are not equal. Um, drug use itself or the illicit drug trade is a multi-billion dollar industry primarily supported by middle to upper class people. Most of the middle to upper class drug users don't identify with drug users who are not of that class. In fact, they look down on those people and they further vilify those people. And so I tried to point all this stuff out. That's why I came out as a middle class drug user to say, yo, all of these middle to upper class drug users using drugs and you're in the closet, you're lying about this shit. And then the only story we have is that if you use heroin, for example, uh, it's inevitable that you go down this path. And it's like, that's just not that's not how we that's not how it works. Well, it wasn't how I mean, I was a middle class drug user as well. And I found like for me, it was it was kind of like like any sort of like mythological story of, of drug use, like the exact media thing that you're talking about kind of was what happened to me. I got hooked on heroin. I wound up on methadone. I wound up unemployed. I wound up, you know, not being around so many middle-class drug addicts anymore. I wound up being in public, uh, institutions all over the place. And, um, it was a bad time. You know what I mean? It was a bad time. And like, I couldn't compare heroin and caffeine because I live for the heroin. You know what I mean? And like, I, I didn't want to stop. I love the heroin too much that let, I didn't know. I didn't. Let, let's stop. Let, let, let's, let's just stop. Let's stop. No, let's, let's unpack this. Caffeine is legal. We can go out and get caffeine. I'm drinking some right now. I'm with you. We can't. Right. We, we can't do that with heroin. When I'm overseas or somewhere, you know, uh, where I got access to heroin or whatever drug I want, uh, it's different. You know, like when I'm in the United States, it's like it's a bad day. If I want some heroin, I know it's a hard thing to get. And so it might be on my mind more. But outside of the United States, where it's there and I have it, it's not a big deal. It's background noise. It's more on the front and the forefront here because it's harder to get, particularly now having some pure sort of stuff and that's that's the thing that i would like to have the pure stuff so when you say when when i compare it to caffeine um i'm if all things equal like if it's available but when you restrict it now it becomes that restricting becomes involved in this sort of uh this formula 
Uh, and that plays a, an important role. But if they both were equally available to us, and then it, then we could really compare it. And it, another point that I want to get at is like, how old were you when you got into trouble with heroin? When if it you started? were young. When, yeah, when you got into trouble, not when you started. When you got into trouble. Well, the I mean, I got into trouble from probably 25 to 35. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just it didn't get better. I, I, I feel you. You know? I feel you. Okay, so like, like when I was 25, 35, I was doing some dumb shit that I wouldn't do at 55 today. Right. And that's just how it works. And so when we're talking about these sort of things, many of the people who are talking about getting in trouble with drugs did so when they were young people. And we also did a lot of other dumb shit. But that other dumb shit that we did don't have the kind of currency that drug use has. And so it's like if you talk about the dumb shit that, like, for example, you might have done with the uh, opposite sex or sure. with some loved one, uh, it doesn't have the same kind of cachet as it, as the dumb shit that you did with heroin. Uh, but you, they're equally dumb shit uh, that young people do. And then as you get older, uh, you kind of uh, you hope people start to minimize the dumb shit that they do. Uh, if they don't, then they won't be around to tell us about it. Exactly. Like like my friend Chris, you know, who died at he was I think he was 33 when he died. But the, the other thing about the dumb shit is that like I did a lot of dumb shit that wasn't at all drug related and some was involving the opposite sex. Others were bad career choices. Others were just stupidity. But with with drugs, the currency of dependency and what it does to your brain in terms of what you think it does. Like there's a, a myth and I think it's kind of what you're talking about with availability or not, but it defined me. Like my whole life was, how do I make sure I don't get sick? How do I stay high? I do not want to get out of this cycle. You know that. So it's a different sort of dumb shit. Uh, I also what? know when I was, what? when I was at my deepest end and I'd be reading books to try to figure out how to get out I heard a phrase that there was something like aging out of addiction. And I got out when I had, when my daughter turned like four, I got out of all drugs because I couldn't be a child anymore. I need, like what you're saying, like I finally, like something clicked in my head. And, um, and one of the things about the book that like, it, it disturbs me for me, not about the book, just for me, it makes me long for the, the, the positive side of drugs. And I can't take the risk. You know what I'm saying? So that's a little bit of a conundrum for me. Okay, so like when when we started, maybe before we were on on air, we you 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 pointed out that I didn't really talk about addiction, and that was intentional um, because uh, damn near all of the attention of, uh, that drugs receive, it's on the pathology addiction, and so I wanted to present a different perspective. Now, uh, when, when, when you talk about how, uh, like, it'd be nice if you could just, like, uh, have a good time, but you can't take that risk. Um, if drugs were available where you know that you get nice, pure shit and you don't have to worry about contaminants and all of those sort of things, um, and you have your daughter, you have these responsibilities that you have to meet. Now, uh, can you tell me that you uh, you still say uh, that's a risk um, um, uh, or does that risk go away? I don't know. Oh, well, for me, if, if they were. 
if they were available, that you didn't have to like go and like you said, deal with shady characters, not knowing what you're going to get. Does that risk go away? That's a question. Well, maybe because that's a, but that's kind of like a fantasy scenario because the scenario, I mean, and also like I figure in my mind, like this is the way I look at my recovery. I made it to 41 doing whatever, whatever I wanted. You know what I mean? Whatever substance I wanted, however much I could get. And I wound up like I was a waiter in a big, I work at Katz's Deli. I was a waiter at Katz's Deli on the Lower East Side. I was subletting an apartment. I was splitting custody. And that was at 41. And I figured if I'm lucky, I'll live to 82. And 41 years of fucking doing whatever I wanted yielded me this really kind of substandard life. So I wanted to see what could another half of my life kind of doing like not drugs, like what could that yield me? Because I don't think I'm like you. I don't think I can do just a little bit. I don't think I could resist the nod. I don't think I can, like, I'm not like that. I'm like, I, I'm all in. I'm not regimented like you. I don't have yeah, the I, PhD. I, I, yeah, I don't know. You know, you have your daughter and then so you had to change some behaviors and you had to be uh, more dependable. You had to do all of these things. So you made those changes. You know, um, there were things that you probably uh, didn't do as well before you had your daughter. But when you had her, you you, you said, well, look, I, I have to meet this obligation. And you did. Um, and so those are skills that you develop. And so why wouldn't you expect those same skills to develop around your drug use. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's not possible. I'm also like, I read this book by, uh, by Danny Trejo, you know, Danny Trejo wrote this autobiography and when he was in, you know, Danny Trejo, the actor, you know what I'm talking about? He's a, he's a Mexican oh, whoa, actor. Whoa, whoa. He played, he was like every Mexican gangster. He was in Breaking Bad. He was La Tortuga. He was in Dust Till Dawn. He was like the vampire bartender. He's like a rugged, like he plays Mexican gangsters in every yeah, yeah. movie. And I had him on the show and he talked about when he got sober, he was really young, but he was in jail at the time with uh, Charles Manson, you know, the, the murderer. And what Charles Manson would do in jail as currency was he would hypnotize the prisoners into thinking they were high, where they could access their being high in their sobriety. And I feel like in my life, like, thank God, I'm not like dying to get high. I, I kind of feel high anyway. Like I just kind of, I feel like if I want to access feeling stoned, I can pretty well access it. Even if I want to access feeling heroin, I can pretty well access it. And same with psychedelics. Like I feel those things all the time. And, and maybe one day, like when the kids are out of the house and the mortgage is fucking paid off, I can, I can revisit this world. But right now I'm so committed to this way and I'm really liking it though. I don't feel like I'm depriving myself a thing. You know, I look at your wall and I see Kaya and I see this Bob record. I don't even know what it is. And like, those records even bring me back to those feelings. Or when I, I read you wrote about Gil Scott Heron, okay? I, I, I grew up where Gil Scott Heron grew up, in Chelsea. And, uh, and I interviewed Gil Scott Heron when I was on heroin. And he was on heroin at SOBs. And it was like a trip, you know, like to be in that situation. And like I lived all those lives and, it, and it's done. But I'm really, really, I admire what you're doing. That you, that you can live it now. Because, like, you're a full-fledged psychonaut in, its, in your own way, right? I went all over the place there. Forgive uh, I, me, doctor. 
when, when you, no, 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 no. Yeah, I got to feel you. Um, you know, when you say what you're doing, I, I don't know what I'm doing. All I'm doing is living. You know, I'm trying to enjoy my life. I'm trying to enjoy my wife. Um, sure. Our kids are our, our kids are out of the house. Like you said, yours are not. Our kids are out of the house. Um, the only sort of real responsibilities that I have are to, like I, I, I teach my class. I do my thing. Um, that's it. I mean, that's these are the least amount of responsibilities I've ever had in my life. Um, and so it's a beautiful time. So when you say what you're doing, uh, uh, I'm living. Um, that's what I'm doing. That, that's all I'm doing. And, uh, you know, on, on some days that includes some psychoactive alteration, which is cool when that happens or, or when it doesn't happen. There are other things that are going on. Like uh, the other night I went to see a friend, uh, Neil Brennan, do his comedy that was mad cool. You know, those kind of things are, are, are cool. Um, that's it. I'm just, I'm just living. And, uh, and, and I don't have any sort of restrictions on like, if somebody has some really good MDMA and they'd be like, yo, you want to, you know, share this with them? I don't have any restrictions. Say, no, nah, I don't do it. It's like, absolutely. That, that sounds good. That's cool. No, I mean, I, I hear you and I, and I'm envious. And I also like, I appreciate you laying out a roadmap for what drugs do. You know what I mean? Without the baggage of what they do to certain people. Like, I think that's important in itself. Um, I know you've gotten a lot of fucking flack from the mainstream media. Have you heard a lot from uh, recovery groups? Do those people come at you in any kind of way? Oh, absolutely. You know, because... You know, as I pointed out, the people who are benefiting from this sort of stupidity in terms of the way we see drugs in this country, this narrow, inappropriate way that we see drugs, the people who are benefiting are those people in recovery, the people themselves, uh, the people who are so-called providing treatment, they're benefiting. Law enforcement is benefiting. The media is benefiting. Uh, people who do who write movies and TV shows, they're all benefiting. Um, you know, like the Breaking Bads of the world, they all benefit. All the stupid shit, uh, The Wire, all of those things, they benefit. Uh, from this nonsense that we are uh, perpetuating in our society. Meanwhile, um, the sort of regular folk who are using or just regular people in communities, particularly in like black communities, they're getting fucked. And, and so, um, uh, yeah, so I, 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 I hear from uh, the recovery community. Not, I mean, it's hard to say like a community, but there are people who are, who are upset. But you know, I don't give a fuck. But I don't you know, mean I don't like, mean the treatment. Uh, I don't. Upset. I don't. I don't mean the treatment people. I don't mean the people that make money. I mean people like me who were using and now in recovery. Like like I don't mean like people who benefit from. Uh, not not no. I, I not not really. I don't. I don't really. Uh, if they if I do, I, I do, they don't bubble up because you know there there's a lot of people who like the media has been really loud and so like if the people in recovery has like uh something to say they have to really be loud because there are some groups who are really loud like the physicians are really loud and the media are really loud so the recovery people they haven't been as loud um but like i say you it's so lovely that the pandemic is, it's certainly not as bad as it was and we're kind of getting back into the public space 
I can't wait to be out in public so people can like come to me with that bullshit that they say. I mean, I want to hear people say it to my face. I want to hear people like bring it to me um, because it's like all of the fucking harm that this approach has done in this society and you fucking got a beef with me. Bring that shit on. You know what I'm saying? That's how I feel. You know, so it's like great you know i'm back in new york now so when i'm in new york i have to pick up the fucking sword and i have to be ready for battle again and and i am and and and, and i don't like to be that way that's one of the lovely things about psychoactive substances i can see the humanity in other people um but uh when it's time to fight i know how to do that shit quite well but you know they're scared you know that they're afraid of these ideas. And, and like when you can approach it with a compassionate sense, you know that they're fearful. You know what I'm saying? They're fearful of ideas that don't jibe in their brain for whatever reason. It, it's a fear reaction. Oh, absolutely. It's a but, knee-jerk thing. Oh, absolutely. But they're causing so much harm. And not only that, they're stupid. I mean, you know, the arguments that people are making are, are really stupid. So if you want to do the intellectual thing, bring it on. You want to do something else? Bring it on, you know, as they say, I wish a motherfucker would, as they say, you know, so it's like, uh, yeah, I'm either way, uh, you know, it's like I prepared all my life uh, for this sort of thing. And so if you're going to say something that so goes against the dogma, you damn well better be prepared. And trust me, I am. Right. No, I hear you. Uh, I have t a couple more questions. First of all, just when we're talking about addiction, like when you when you when you stumble upon a drug addict, you know what I mean? Like a heroin addict who's been addicted to heroin for years, like what what goes through your head in general? I know you said live and let live. Like, do you have compassion for him? Like, do you feel like, oh, shit, he couldn't handle it? Like, where do you think it's an illness? Like, where does it sit in your head? Well, again, you know, so the book is about compassion and uh, helping us to be more humane. Yes. So when you ask the question about, like, if I come across the, somebody who's a heroin addict, in which, like, being in this clinic in Geneva, uh, everybody who was in the clinic were heroin addicts. But they were fucking happier than me. Their quality of life was a lot better than mine in the United States, in part because in Switzerland, they kind of take care of their people. So it's like when you say a heroin addict, it's not this sort of uh, monolithic sort of group. Down and out, I right? suspect, you, uh, yeah, you, if you're talking about somebody like down and out, you know, I go to places all around the world from uh, the sort of Appalachia in the United States to Northern Ireland, and you see these people struggling. The thing that I want that I try and figure out is like, why are they struggling? You know, it's like uh, it ain't heroin. And I'm looking long past heroin. But, you know, like if I get stuck at heroin, I'm doing the same stupid shit that everybody else does. And oftentimes people are struggling. Uh, you know, these people are struggling because they don't have uh, economic security, housing security, all the rest of these kind of things they don't have. They don't have the skills that no one ever gave them the skills or taught them the skills, a wide range of reasons that they are, they are experiencing problems or suffering. And so that's what I want to know. And I want to know, like, um, uh, do, do, are they being provided uh, those things that they are missing? 
um, from whether they're being provided by the state or, or other people or uh, NGOs, are they providing those kind of services? Oftentimes, no is the answer in all of the cases. Like the NGOs only have a narrow sort of thing that they're interested in. The state only has a narrow sort of thing that it's interested in. Again, that's why in the book, I tried to pull people away from the drugs themselves. Because when we get stuck on the drugs themselves, that means we're not going to be fucking addressing people's problems. Right, right. And, and it's really about life fulfillment. It's like if you can find life fulfillment, chances are you're not going to be all strung out on anything. You know, if you can find fulfillment in, a, in something else, you're not going to, to fall down. Like I, it took me to find recovery, to find fulfillment outside of daily drug use. You know what I mean? Like I, I just couldn't see it and I couldn't find joy without being totally fucked up, you know, and that was my story. And now I found some sort of peace and happiness and fulfillment. And like, I want to hold on to it. You know, that's why, like, I, I, I have two minds about like, when I think about like the good qualities of drugs, I know that like, it fucked me up too much to like, even consider it. Like, I just can't. Um, I love though, when you talk about being, has this interview like, gotten you upset at all or are you good i don't want to be somebody that i don't want to be a motherfucker you want to fight or anything i want to be cool with you you and me right dr hart dave 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 yo you and me are good yo i mean and and so like you want you and i are talking like boys i mean you we're talking um like i would talk to somebody like joe uh, or somebody who i dig so that that's the um and Trust me, if, if I'm not if I'm not having fun, I have no no qualms about just like bouncing. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm good, man. So then here's another question. It's a very controversial question, Dr. Hart. So I wanted to make sure that we are boys here. Now, when you talk about that most days you do a psychoactive substance, give me a little schedule. Like give me like a fantasy Dr. Carl Hart psychoactive substance schedule, please. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Give me... Be more specific. Okay, like today is, what is today? Wednesday, okay? So like what psychoactive substances might be on the menu between today and next Wednesday? Yeah, right on. So I now teach Tuesdays and Thursdays, and the day is Wednesday. So what the day is, I I interrupted my day to do this with you. Um, Typically, Nothing's on the menu besides preparation for the class on Thursday. That's the same thing on Monday. So Monday and Wednesday look exactly the same. All day preparation for the class the following day. And then Thursday evening or something, um, I may look or may try and do like a comedy show or live comedy or something of that nature. Um, In terms of like psychoactive substances on on the menu in the United States, there are no like uh, set plans or anything. If I'm in a place like Switzerland or a place, I would have uh, my psychoactive substances that I like, like MDMA, um, some H-Town heroin or some, some opioid or something, um, maybe uh, another kind of amphetamine or, or some other drug. But um, um, And then I would take it when I have... Uh, 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 my moment, I mean, just like on a weekend or something, that's my moment. Um, uh, when it make, to make sure it doesn't interfere with my workout schedule, my 
reading schedule, um, uh, my time with my children, family, and so forth, just to make sure that uh, it's actually all my time and I can do what I want in that space. Um, um, and so it, but it's not like, um, it's certainly not like something that happens uh, at, with regularity because my days sometimes they, 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 they differ. But Monday and Wednesday, off limits for anything. So your medicine chest isn't just like disassociatives, heroin, opium, fucking hash. I imagine this wizard's wizard's medicine no. chest in your apartment. No, it's not like that. Um, well, well you, you know, I, li- I live in the United States, man. You know, in the United States, they treat us like children. And so um, you can imagine if I run afoul of the law, it would be big news. And so what I have to do again, I have to be really regimented because uh, if I run a file, then it becomes the symbol that everyone who does this is fucked up. And I don't want to um, cause other people who I'm trying to help that kind of stress. I, I never want to do that sort of thing. No, I appreciate that a lot. And uh, I had one more thing, like you, you teach at Columbia and one of my favorite, like one of the, the early things that got me interested in drugs was the whole uh, Columbia University beat scene and, and William Burroughs writing with, with Ginsburg up there and they're all on drugs and, and, and learning and involved in this sort of uh, exciting college experience. Is that in your experience at Columbia? Is there a spirit there that you feel that stuff or is that just bullshit in my white Jewish brain? If there is such a spirit, that spirit died long before (laughs) I got there. Okay, okay. I actually, like, I went up there years ago. My friend was in school, and I hadn't become a drug addict. I was playing in a band, and some dude offered to front me an ounce of, of weed to sell it for him, and I took it. He was some frat boy in Columbia, and I took the ounce of weed from him, and I never went back, and I just stole the ounce of weed from this kid in Columbia. That's my big story about Columbia. Dr. Hart, you've been eminently patient and, uh, and super fun, and I really appreciate your honesty in coming on the show. I do. Thank you for having me, Dave, and thank you for hanging in there despite my inability to really navigate social media, so thank you. Dude, I appreciate it, doctor. And um, I'm going to be in touch. I'm, I, I'm sorry to tell you. You're going to hear from me again. I'm here, and uh, I hope I meet you in person one day. I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. Right on, Dr. Hart. I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for your time. Peace, bro. Peace, man. Thank you. So that was Dr. Carl Hart on Dopey. I, I tried to get him on the show. And who's back on Dopey now? Ms. Ask Aaron herself. Aaron Carr, welcome back to the show. Hello. And uh, before we jump into the wonderful world of drug use for grown-ups and the great Dr. Carl Hart, you've had some pretty crazy experiences vis-a-vis dopey in your personal life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and... This person's probably going to listen to this and hear somebody from my past listen to the episode, the first episode I did of Dopey a few weeks ago and contacted me. And I haven't spoken to him in 18 years. And it's not just somebody. No, not just somebody like the person who introduced me to drugs. It was the person that first <laughs> shot you up. Yeah. And, and did other horrible things to you. Oh, 
Allegedly. You know, I want to talk about this. I don't want to cause more problems for myself. It's fine. Like I wish him well. It's all, it's all good. It was just a bit of a shock to hear from him. I had spoken to him like post all of the events that happened in my youth, but I hadn't spoken to him since I was pregnant with Atticus. So it was a bit of a shock. And a lot of people I know who weren't as big of a shock contacted me because they heard me on the show and I hadn't been in contact with them. So apparently, like, I think I told, oh, another person who I dated (laughs) contacted me and said that he heard me on the show. And I was like joking with Dave that there's got to be some sort of Venn diagram for people I was romantically involved with and dopey listeners. And drug addicts. Yeah, yeah, well, obviously, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me because I've been making this show for almost six years and very few people have come out of the woodwork at all. Like nobody. Really? Nobody has come out of the woodwork. No ex-girlfriends? No, no. People from elementary school? I told, I had a friend of mine on the show and, and it was a very like crazy story mm-hmm. where it was I, her his girlfriend cheated on him with me mm-hmm. she left him for me mm-hmm. and i was in a long-term relationship with her right and he came on the show and we talked about it and he was like oh we should i'm sure she listened we should tell her and i was like i don't think she listened nobody listens to this stupid show <laughs> and uh and i called her up to tell her and she hadn't listened and she didn't know and then she listened and felt bad so like <laughs> nobody in my past for some reason no listens and in your past everyone listens oh my gosh. it's so weird so many people wow that well, shows the magical reach of dopey it does it just means that you have a large audience right well but it's weird that i haven't had the same phenomenon it is weird it is weird but i think i should look at that as a blessing i bet you people who have listened who actually are connected to me don't want to tell me or maybe they don't want to listen to me because i've done them wrong in some way or (laughs) another that could be or yeah yeah, i'm sure there are a bunch of like closet listeners from your there was a woman from my elementary school who started listening after This American Life. Mm-hmm. There was a little chunk of people who were like, ooh, I know that guy. And right. they listened and they're like, I don't want to listen to this anymore. <laughs> and then and then the real dopes came in and the real dopes benefit from listening to Dopey. And the fake ones are like, I think I've heard enough about heroin and stuff. It's like a drive-by Dopey. Yeah, something right. like that. And uh, But let's talk about Dr. Carl Hart yes. and drug use for grown-ups. And the first thing I need to say is that I was very disappointed with myself in this interview. I don't know why. I, I don't I'll tell know why. you, because like when I sit down to interview, and I'm doing air quotes when right. I say interview, <laughs> when I sit down to interview someone, I never write questions. Mm-hmm. I just write like notes and I write topics right. to talk about. These are actually my Dr. Carl Hart notes. Right. And it says, Dr. Carl Hart, curious, <laughs> drug use for grownups. <laughs> Ignorance versus addiction. Where do you get drugs? That was my one question. Um, addiction? Question mark. That was like so. Like if I had questions for mm-hmm. him, like what do you think addiction is an illness? That was the question I had but to you, ask but him. You kind of asked that. I know before I listened to the interview, you had told me that you didn't ask that, but you did kind of ask that. He didn't really give you a clear answer, although. I did make notes while I was listening. Erin Carr is the most organized, dopey guest. She has double-sided notes. So why don't we talk about some of your notes before we get to the Ask Erin portion of Dopey? Right. So one of the things that he said when you 
asked that question, basically. He said that psychoactive substances allow him to see the humanity in other people. And then he sort of intimated that if we eliminate trauma and mental health issues like anxiety and depression, the experience of drugs would be different than like what you and I have had with drugs. So it really, and I think he's probably right. But although, how can you do that? But although, well, a lot of therapy, like, look, I don't have cravings anymore, right? At all. And that's because I've done a lot of work, right? That said, I could, pro I could probably do any substance except for heroin <laughs> casually. I wouldn't because I don't think it would be, I just don't have the desire to like test it out. But as he was talking about heroin, I was like, yeah, like that sounds great. Like the way he's describing it sounds awesome. But two things, I don't think that would be the experience for me. I think it would go south really, really quickly. And, and also I think that like my body memory of drugs is so negative that I don't think I would actually be able to enjoy the pleasure part of it. Yeah. I mean, the last time I did heroin, I've told the story on the show many times. I didn't do it for, I don't know, four years or something, or maybe, no, maybe I didn't do it for like a year and a mm -hmm. half. And, um, and I started taking Percocets again and I liked the way the Percocets made me feel. And I was like, I miss shooting dope. I'm going to get some dope. And I got some dope and I shot a bag and it was like, I barely felt it. And then I shot two bags and I got so high. I got too high. I got that, you know, like the first time yeah. you get high and it's uncomfortable. I felt like that. And, and I, my big quote was, it felt like I was being raped by a demon. <laughs> like I, it was like, you know, like when you have like, it's like when you smoke cigarettes at first, when you're not used to it, it's not it's that gross. pleasant. Yeah. That's how heroin made me feel when I didn't do it. So I feel like if I sniffed a line of good Afghan heroin by the fire, if Dr. I, Hart. Yeah, Dr. Hart style, <laughs> I think I might enjoy it because it would be just a little like he, yeah. he said that when he nods, he ruins the, 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 the right. dope high. Right. He said, if he slurs, he's not doing heroin right. And for me, I like had activities set up to mm -hmm. ensure that I would nod. Like I had a guitar always there so that I knew that if I played guitar when I did dope, even if I had a tolerance, I would, I would fade. I'd have a, a, a comic. I would read right. comics when I did heroin because it would make me nod out. I would do these things so I would get a nod. Yeah, for sure. I mean, de I mean, definitely like obliteration was, was often the goal for me. But I think that the last, you know, like the end of my using, I wasn't. I just wasn't even like, there was no part of the high that was enjoyable. I was just trying not to get sick. And like, it didn't give me the relief that I was looking for. And like, even like nodding out didn't really feel good because I wasn't really sleeping. It just didn't, it didn't do what it used to do. And no. I don't, and, and I just don't think, and, and now like I've had surgeries where, you know, I had like a thyroid, they had like took out part of my thyroid in 2008 and I was on a morphine drip in the hospital and it was the most frustrating thing because I was in pain and then I was like I felt kind of high but I was just so nauseous and then felt anxious about the fact that I felt high so you so didn't was, have the feeling of being by the feel, fireplace it didn't feel with blissful. the Afghan no lines. but it sounds wonderful if if I could if somebody was like a hundred percent sure that I could do drugs like Dr. Hart I would totally do them of course, why wouldn't you? But I also thought one thing that was interesting too is that when he talks about, you know, with drugs being illegal in the United States, that 
he kind of intimated that he didn't really do them in here, the US, here yeah. because it took the pleasure out of it because of the illicit nature of drugs. And I think that there's something with that too. I mean, I, I think that because they're quote unquote illicit just adds to that sort of like shitty shame cycle that people or the romance in. of like being right. like a pirate and doing right. what you're not supposed to and being a rebel and like right. being like, you know, out there. I liked all that stuff. Yeah. I liked living in that way. Um, another thing that I didn't talk to Dr. Hart about mm -hmm. that I was really wanted to was he participates in this thing called the boom festival in Portugal. Do you know what that is? No. It's like, the European version of Burning Man. And okay. they all go out there and get wasted right. on everything. And he goes out there with some like cosmic recovery crew. Like, and they're like making sure people aren't tripping badly. Right, right, right. And he's like on that team. And like they're giving him like pills of, of, of disassociative psychedelics and all this shit. And like, he's like, it's crazy. And yeah. the thing that, the thing that like really <laughs> spoke to me is like, I, when I read his book, it hurt mm. because I wanted to be like him. Yeah. I wanted to be this freewheeling, psychedelic, drug-taken professor. It sounds amazing. I know. <laughs> but, like, so I, I have two experiences. I have this crazy addiction mm -hmm. recovery experience, and then I have that psychedelic, freewheeling, drugs are exciting and interesting. And he doesn't, like, he can't relate to the addiction recovery thing. No. And when I talked to him about it, it was like I was speaking French. But I think part of that, I understand where he's coming from because I, I kind of, you know, it's kind of how I approach recovery as well. Is it like the, it's not the drugs that are the problem. You sound like Dr. Hart. It's not. I mean, I think that that's true. I think because I look at so many people I know in the 90s who even like did heroin like tried it and like it didn't. They but never, they weren't doing lines of Afghan by the fireplace when they could. They no, were like, but I they, don't like it. I'm not going back there. No, I know people who did heroin. There are a couple of people who did heroin with me casually. And because it was like everywhere in L.A. in the late 90s, a lot of people did it. And it was something like they did like once in a blue moon. And they didn't. I don't know. It, I think that for people like that, they didn't have like like coexisting other issues co-occurring mental health disorders yeah or with their psyche you know i think that there is something to that that's not to say that you know i don't know if it's fixable i always think that like ultimately if what's fixable the underlying issues like they're fixable like for me right my underlying whatever issues are fixable to the degree that i can function I have a good life and I've been in recovery for 18 and a half years but I don't think they're fixable to the degree that I would be somebody who could go use drugs the way that Dr. Hart does and and I've accepted that like that's okay I've accepted it too I mean I'm a little jealous but <laughs> I'm 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 not jealous because I'm really not jealous because I know I can't do it. Yeah. You know, it's like it's off the table. Yeah. I don't have the ability to have that experience. And I thought that was interesting, too, because he's like, are you sure you can't? You know, he's like, he's like, you were a kid. But, and I wasn't a kid. Right. You know, like, I don't know. I don't see his work as it affects or is affected by alcoholism and drug addiction. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like totally separate lanes for some reason. I mean, it is, but I do think there's some crossover too. I think that there's crossover because he's talking about drugs in a way 
that is, I mean, it's more and more common, but in, in, a, in a way that's like different than the, the way people talked about drugs when we were growing up. Well, it's totally, it's the opposite of yeah. how people, but where is the talk about addiction and alcoholism in his talk? I think that he, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth. But the impression I got is that he doesn't believe that it's addiction and alcoholism. He believes it's a symptom of another problem. That there is that for people with trauma or psychiatric illnesses, this is just another manifestation of those those problems. And I tend to agree. I don't think you know it's, it goes back to the thing that like we've talked about before. Like I don't think that there. I don't think that there is like one answer for recovery. I don't think that there's one underlying issue for addiction, but I do think that for many, many people, the addiction is a symptom of something else. Right. A hundred percent. I think it's just, I guess what, what becomes difficult is to be a tourist in this world mm -hmm. of drug use for grownups right. when I'm an adult addict who did that. Right. And it does, it's like a totally different path. You know right. what I mean? I know what that path, where that path led me. And it's fun. And it's like, you're almost like, don't do it. You're going to be like me. It's going to, it's going to, this is going to happen to you. If you think that you can do drugs like Dr. Hart, you know what I mean? It's but, like, and part of that's the, tw but I mean, part of that is like the 12 steps too. I don't think so. You don't I, think I, so? I, I forget the 12 steps. Cause okay. like, I'm not saying in terms of recovery, like mm -hmm. we can take the 12 steps off the table. I'm saying somebody who it's, it's, and I don't want to bash Dr. Carl Hart. I was super oh, he's happy. Amazing. I was super happy to have him on the show. He was cool. You know, he was nice to me, whatever. And I, I didn't like the interview though. Cause I felt like I was too nervous and I, I came across in a way that I don't like to come across on Dopey. But I don't think, that, well, I didn't pick up on that, right? So I think the other people, well, we'll, we'll find out. Dopey Nation, if you found that I was overly <laughs> sycophantic or pussyish, please leave me uh, an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. What I'm saying is there is potential danger in reading the book and being mm -hmm. like, I would like to do a few lines of sure. good Afghan heroin by the fire. And you do it. And then you're like, oh, I would like to do some more lines of Afghan mm -hmm. heroin. And and you build up a habit, you know what I mean? Like, and all of a sudden you like went from being this person that didn't think they should do drugs to being a drug addict. I understand what you're saying, but I don't like, like my mother would never read that book and think, even if she thought it was interesting. How old is your mother? <laughs> Come on, I'm, I'm, not I'm, not age. <laughs> I'm not talking about your mother. I'm talking right, about even, like some kid. Yeah, but I think that he's not talking about like an adolescent doing it. He's talking about like a man in his 50s who... A grown-ass man, who takes, grown care, ass man. who takes care of his, his shit. Yeah, he's, his kids are out of the house. Right. He's responsible I'm with the way he does it. I'm jealous that, too. That's obvious. what it is. No, right. look, it's as obvious. I was listening to it, it, it fucked with my head a little bit. And I think I told you, I went and like watched some of his like TED Talk videos. And like, I think it's really really, really interesting because I do a hundred percent think that like, I remember in the first rehab I went to, I had to like write like a breakup letter to heroin. Me too. And, and the first was, expensive one and the cheap ones, they don't want you to write anything. It was very, you know, like as if it was like, I had been in this abusive relationship What'd and all this say? stuff. I mean, it was stupid. Like, you know, like you've abused me for the last time. I mean, I don't know. I, I probably have the letter somewhere. I should find you it. probably have it in one of your Tupperware bins yeah, exactly. of writing. <laughs> I, but, but now when I look at it, I'm like, it's like heroin is neutral. It's not 
Like it's a substance. It it's didn't have any motives. It, it just got no. you high. It was just we, a substance. We have opiate receptors for a reason, right? So as Dr. A, Carl Hart talks about that in his book. As a medication and as a, a function in, in, you know, in the life of a human being, there's a function there for it to exist, right? It's just that there are, are people who, when they take it, just like there are plenty of people who have alcohol socially or smoke weed and it's not a problem. And then for other people, it's a problem. I think, I think it's like about that, like sort of like de demonization of drugs and looking at them as very, like they're neutral. And when we get away from like looking at everything as being illicit, it also destigmatizes things for people who use drugs. It's, it's, it is a slippery slope yeah. with this because there's many, many different ways to look at it and many, many different lenses you can look at mm -hmm. it through. Like if I'm not looking at it through my addict recovery mm -hmm. lens, like I totally agree with Dr. Mm -hmm. Hart. Like I think like you can go tubing, you could go bungee jumping, you can go skydiving. Why can't you do MDMA mm -hmm. or heroin mm -hmm. recreationally? I agree with that. Just as somebody who like lost his life right. to this, it scares me. Of course. But, but I, I would love, like, I mean, like the first thing I said to him was when me and Chris met in rehab, mm -hmm. we talked about how cool it would be if there was a rehab for using where it was the opposite, where we could right. take whatever we wanted and really enjoy them in the way that he does. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think both of those things, I think what it is, it's hard for our brains to like hold both concepts at the same time like what he's saying is like a truth and what you're saying is a truth and they coexist it's just it is um it's it's weird mm -hmm. to live your life in this way where you're trying to help people get out of this mess right and then be like you know praise this style of thinking when you're totally right it's two totally separate forms of thinking totally about the same things but they don't go together. Right. They can't. How can they? Because there's a difference between fundamentally Dr. Hart's... Appreciating the concept, you mean? D yeah, I think that... Well, for you, for you. For okay? me. You, you haven't done heroin in... 18 and a half years. And can you... Do you think you could... I mean, like, you said, I, why wouldn't you try some Afghan heroin by the fire? I mean, never say never, but I don't think... I just see already. He opened the he, he cracked no. the window in your no. brain. Yes, I mean, he did. I, no, he did. Are you sure? If, if never you, say well, never. I'm you, not gonna you, lie. Never if Doctor Hart was like, "Do you want to come? My wife will make dinner, and you can do." <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I I don't think Doctor Hart was on Rogan, okay? <laughs> uh huh. And and he's talking to Joe Rogan about drugs, mm -hmm. and Joe Rogan says, "Doctor Hart says I like to do some Colombian cocaine." Mm -hmm. And I know you do too, Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan's like, actually, I've never tried cocaine. He's like, no way. And by the end of the interview, Joe Rogan says to Dr. Carl Hart, mm -hmm. I'd like to try some Colombian cocaine with you and do some lines of Afghan heroin by the fire. At the end <laughs> of the interview, Joe Rogan's like, I want to do coke and heroin with you, Dr. Carl Hart, like you do. Well, but for me, it's like more of like a fantasy because like I said, I just, I don't believe that. I feel like I have too in much... In your fantasy, is Dr. Hart reading to you? Oh, that would be great. He has a great <laughs> voice. Yes. 
I mean, he definitely, like, the way he talks about it, like, he makes heroin sound very cool and sexy and, like, awesome. But I just, I don't, I think that, like, I did too much heroin uh-huh. and had too many negative consequences. Yes. My body memory of it is so negative. Like, I've told you, like, I've when I've had to take pain medication after a surgery and they've given me a prescription for, like, a week, I'm, like, day two, I feel so paranoid right. that I'm going to feel... Not like that I want more. I'm so paranoid that my all, my body will go into withdrawal after having taken it for two days that I just stop taking it because I'm I too can't, much. I can't relax into the feeling. I lost that privilege. You know, I did enough. I like that's the other thing. Like I did I did so many drugs for so long that I really I'm OK not ever doing them again because I did them enough. <laughs> right, right. That was that was the other thing that got me through recovery was I'm never going to get as high as I was. It's no, not going to happen. No. It's done. It's never going to feel that good. I think your assessment of Dr. Carl Hart is right on. I think you did a really nice job on this segment. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so thank you. Ask Aaron, Aaron Carr. And thank you, Dr. Carl Hart. Yes, I really I, I find him really fascinating. OK, well, that's OK. And now we will move on to the other place that Aaron Carr's dopey fame has blossomed, <laughs> which is the Ask Aaron Department that's of amazing. Dopey. Tell so the Dopey many, Nation. So many questions. I have I, like really a ton of questions. I just dropped. I have <laughs> to say that favorite. your your experience around Ask Aaron has renewed my faith in the Dopey show. Oh, that's so amazing. Because who knew? No one's writing me. You got 25 fucking questions. Oh, it's wild. It's wild. Why don't they write me? What well, is they, that? Well, they were writing. I guess they were writing. They've been writing to you, but I writing know. to you for Do me. Do you know that people <laughs> people write me and people say nice things and I miss it. I like, yeah. I only get the that's negative stuff. I know. So what do we got for Ask Aaron? Okay, so uh, I have a couple of heartfelt and one kind of scandalous. All right, do it. All right. So, the first one is, uh, this is for the Ask Aaron segment. I'm just a typical blonde preppy girl who used to be addicted to opiates, not heroin, just pills. Not like that's better or anything. Anyways, I was an addict for eight years. I guess I still am because I've been on Suboxone for like six years. Now I'm addicted to the Suboxone. I'm in nursing school and basically have everything going for me. I'm about to get married to the love of my life in February. One of our agreements is that I'm off the Suboxone by February. I'm in such a terrible situation, just like any addict is. However, I do feel a little different. My closest friends and family know my past and know the struggles I've been through. Everyone is so proud of me because they think I'm in such a good place. I'm not in a good place. I don't know how to get off the Suboxone. My life has never been better than it is now. My life was never great while not on Suboxone. This is because I was addicted to pills, draining my bank account, and living like an absolute bomb. What is your best advice to get off this? I don't really know what to do anymore. I found a Dovey podcast about a year ago while searching for a recovery podcast. I don't know if she meant to say Dopey. I didn't want to listen to anything. She wrote Adobe? She said Adobe. That must you, be an autocorrect. I, I bet it was like a text-to-type thing. Yeah, yeah, Totally. Uh, so when I found out, when I found Dopey, I felt Talk like I found gold. Yeah. Sorry. Although I was never addicted to heroin, I can relate to many of the stories that I hear these people explain while being interviewed these on the podcast. People. I know. <laughs> I think I can relate to, to you the most because we had a similar upbringing. Again, I was never on heroin, but opiates are just as bad. I'm open to hearing anything. How can she say opiates are just as bad if she's never been on heroin? I don't know. 
Keep going. I'm open to hearing anything or anything I can do to get off the stuff. Please help. Toodles for Chris. Before also. before you, well, why is it significant that she's blonde and preppy? I don't What's know. The I'm not blonde. <laughs> You're not particularly not preppy I'm not either. preppy either. Anyway. I went to a prep school. Okay. You, you so, yeah, that's a preparatory school. And I, first of all, I want to say thank you for writing this this letter, this yes. question. And ask I think Aaron it's Carr. important because I think there are a lot of people who are addicted to pills or trying to come off of pills. So first of all, like, wait, wait, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Is she saying that her fiance is saying she must be off the Suboxone if he will marry her? Yeah. That's his condition for marriage. Yeah. Wait, can I tell you something really crazy that I didn't put in the book? You ready? Ready. <laughs> I, so my ex-husband I had told him that I had stopped and I was still using. And he, when he found out, I said that he found out again and I went to, you know, find a doctor and blah, blah, blah. But he found out on our wedding day. <laughs> what did he find out? That I was getting high still. How did he find out? He caught me. I, I got caught. I mean, this How is did like he a, catch you? What was the setup? Uh, it was similar to the way I got caught years before that, where I was like in the bathroom. We were at the Ritz Carlton and had just been married and like ready to go to like the dinner and he like was like why is she in the bathroom so long and suspicious because obviously i had a history you were and, yeah. and everything oh no no he didn't catch me he found my stash where did he find it, it wherever i don't even remember where i had it and i had it somewhere and then we had to go we were supposed to go on our honeymoon and he like wasn't we went on our honeymoon he was so mad at me he wouldn't speak to me and he was like did he take the dope what did you do no. with the dope I couldn't have gone on the honeymoon. So we were flying to Hawaii and he was like, I'm going to tell the TSA that you have heroin on you, <laughs> which he didn't. Well, but yeah, he didn't make you, we, he didn't get rid of it. And he obviously didn't narc you out because that no, would have spoiled the honeymoon. It would have really spoiled the honeymoon. Why didn't you put that in the book? I don't know. I mean, I think there were so many things that happened around that and him finding out that like I left out for, for him as well. But Why? I don't know. Why'd you leave that out? Do you know how you many... You said he was cheating, he was lying, he's stealing, everything bad, or you don't tell this story? Why? <laughs> I don't know. There are a lot of things that I left out of the book. There's only But so this is a good one. I know. Okay. Well, here's an... Ex it's an exclusive. <laughs> what is... A dopey exclusive. Dopey Ask Aaron exclusive. What's her name? Uh, well, I'm not going to say her name. How about her first initial? E. So what do you have... What's your... I have advice for E, but what's your advice? So the first thing is that she needs to get off of Suboxone with the help of a doctor. I mean, you don't just stop taking it, right? No. You need to be tapered off of it. So what she should do is wherever she's getting her Suboxone, I imagine that they have some sort of protocol for tapering somebody off of it. You know, this is my big my big thing. If I, if I had a, a cause, mm -hmm. I have this idea. Mm -hmm. The dopey cause would be lower dosage of Suboxone. Yeah. Because they don't make a 0 0.01, 0 0.02. Mm. Like they make like the lowest dose is like 0.5 and then they cut the shit in half right. or they snip the film. You know, they have those sublingual mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Suboxones and they snip it, but they don't have a tiny... Yeah, they should make smaller I think doses. that's the yeah. big dopey movement is smaller dosages of Suboxone so people can fucking kick easier. But yes, but what about... I have a question though. Yeah. As a woman... What about the dude being like, I'm not going to marry you until you're off Suboxone? You don't I care. Mean, you say, you say, you don't well, blame I mean, that. I, whatever. It's like, it's, 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 
if that's his boundary, if he's like, I want to make sure that like, you're really, you like, can only be my wife if you are not on <laughs> medical assisted treatment. I mean, then that's, that's for her. That's his prerogative. And then it's her prerogative. If that's the per- type that's of person, the person she wants to marry this controlling guy, you know, I think that like, it's that, also, don't you think that there's some sort of mythology? Cause this woman is going to go down from wherever she is to zero. And in his head, I guess that means that she was never on it. Because, like, what's the difference if she's at point two or zero? Because, truthfully, and also, like, in the email, she says she's, like, addicted to Suboxone. But if she's just on it for maintenance, I don't consider that to be addicted to Suboxone. But when you stop, you're going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, but I don't think, but but that there is, you know, I've, I've seen people medically, ta- medically taper off of methadone, and they were not high. They were, they doing it according to like a certain protocol and a tapering program, that's still recovery. That's not the same as being in like active raging addiction. But I think that's really interesting in itself. Mm-hmm. She's saying I'm addicted to Suboxone or Suboxone as we both pronounce. Right. Um, <laughs> or like you're on methadone and you're in recovery. I was on methadone and I was addicted to methadone like 150 percent. Mm-hmm. Like, because I never was on methadone, it's bad. I, I mean, like, I don't besmirch right. anyone right. who's in recovery on methadone, but the thing about her and the thing about me and the thing about anybody who's reliant on a synthetic opioid to get you through the day when you don't have it, you are going to be in yes. discomfort, borderline misery. But Suboxone isn't technically a synthetic opioid, no, but it, it it's you, just tricking your opiate receptors. But you go into withdrawal, don't yeah. you? Yes, but I don't think I, I honestly, from everything I've heard and from my, so I detoxed on buprenorphine. I did not, I still had to go through some level of withdrawal. I was only on it for seven days. It was a seven day program of being on buprenorphine, but I don't, I mean, the buprenorphine did not make me feel high and I still felt like I was coming off of heroin. It was just a million times easier. Right. It wasn't as like violent. There was a time in the very beginning of one of my relapses and I had just started getting heroin again and I was getting it kind of in the East village by, you know, that fancy hotel that's like next to the homeless shelter on Bowery. Bowery. Oh, yeah. the Bowery. I yeah. stayed there. Okay. I used to cop there. <laughs> yeah. And, and then all those people live there in that yeah. homeless shelter and I would buy heroin there. And then one day I couldn't score heroin mm-hmm. and I had never had proper Suboxone. I had weaned on buprenorphine mm-hmm. and treatment in LA also. Um, and this guy, my hookup was like, I couldn't get dope, but I got this. And he gives me two eight milligram Suboxone. Mm-hmm. And I took them and I got higher than I had been on really? the dope because I, the dope I was doing was such crap. Right. And I was doing so little, the Suboxone fucked me up. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, that's, right. I mean, that's part of the story. So what are we going to say to this young lady or old lady or whoever she is? I think that number one, she needs to have an honest conversation with her fiance about what it's going to take to be tapered off of it. And, and absolutely should be tapering off of it medically. And then the other thing is that she doesn't mention any sort of support system or recovery for herself. And I think that one of the things that happens that I've seen happen to people who come off of Suboxone is that they've tapered off of it. They come off of it. They're not physically addicted to it anymore. They're, you know, off of everything, but because your opiate receptors were being filled, you're now going to have that deficit that comes with that like post 
using it's crazy even talking about this stuff i feel like sick like i i I talk about this and i feel sick Mm -hmm. but the great thing to me in this situation is because you're dealing with a physical dependency yeah then you're dealing with a psychological dependency and then you're dealing with this weird spiritual concert of both your psyche so so what you need to do is you do the wean you make it as comfortable as possible Mm -hmm. And I, I know this is not Ask Dave, but Ask Aaron. No, but part of it, the, the whole, it's Ask Aaron. Uh, just, just relax. And okay? Just take right? it easy. <laughs> um, what I'm saying is fucking get distracted by something. Watch yes. the whole series of 90210. Fucking yes. crochet yourself yarmulkes for the wedding. Do something. And, and, and you know, I'm assuming she's a pro- professional person. Get some therapy. Like, start seeing a therapist now about coming off of the Suboxone to to sort of like circumvent any potential depression because there's a likelihood that it may come once you're off of the Suboxone and to also maybe get some counseling with your fiance so that he has a clearer understanding of what it means coming off of the Suboxone. Right. I think the most important thing is that this lady E, she knows what she has to do. Right. There's like a fucking billion things you can do E. She's scared. And I respect that. And I'm scared for her and I'm scared for my past self. Like even hearing this stuff, I'm getting nervous. But I know, I mean, and I know you're not a 12 step person, but the phrase rarely have we seen someone thoroughly follow this path. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to just be about 12 step. No, whatever path it is. I'm just saying there are so many things that she can do. Pick 15, Mm -hmm. do them all and bolster yourself. It's, It's all about like having a support system in place, whether that's 12-step meetings, a therapist, your friends, whatever it is. Hobbies. Yes, religion, whatever it is for you. Good times. Yeah. Square dancing. You know, my dad and my mother, when I was in trouble, they would go square dancing, uh, gay square dancing. Are you serious? With a group called the Times Squares. Yes. my heart. Yes. That's so amazing. So maybe he should go gay square dancing. I highly, that sounds amazing. I want to go gay square dancing. My dad can set you up. (laughs) That's that's done. Um, What else you got? Okay. Uh, Do we have time for two more or do we just one more? Just one more. Okay. So, mm, 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 mm. okay, I'm going to do this one. Uh, Hi, Aaron. I've been following you for a few years. I read your book and it was a nice surprise to hear you and Dave on Dopey. You mentioned something about the craziest questions you get. You know, hold on. My yeah. friend Brad, my friend Brad came up with this idea to do a podcast about drug stories. Mm-hmm. And I stole it from him mm-hmm. years later. You know, he told me the idea when I was high. <laughs> I stole it years later. And Brad has been yelling at me through this whole process that dopey shouldn't exist, that it shouldn't be dopey, that dopey should be drug line which would be love line where we just do this. So this is very much another concept stolen from my friend, Brad, but continue, please. (laughs) But also for me, and stolen from you. Maybe you stole it from Brad, too. Maybe. Hey, can, Brad, are you out there? Sometimes. He usually is asleep at this point in the show. You mentioned something about the craziest questions you get, and it's pretty similar to my situation. I have something I have been holding in a while, and I guess I have Uh-oh. a question, too. Uh-oh. If you answer my question on Dopey or your column, please do not use my name. Okay. What's her name? We won't. Just tell me. I won't say it. We're just going to call her... Evelyn. Evelyn, sure. <laughs> 
You know how you said you, that you get a lot of questions about affairs with stepdads. Uh-oh. Well, I did something really fucked up. Let me give you a little backstory. I'm 32. I have almost a year sober. My mom and her boyfriend, who may as well be my stepdad because they've been together for 10 years, are sober. My mom's boyfriend has been sober a long time, like more than 25 years. My mom has been sober for 12 years. My mom's boyfriend works in recovery, and he helped me get into rehab last year. My, my problem was mostly alcohol, but also some pills and cocaine. Right after I got out of rehab, my mom had to go out of town for a bit to take care of her sister. She doesn't live that far away, but because of COVID, she wasn't going back and forth. When I was first out of rehab, I was going to a lot of meetings, and my mom's boyfriend was looking out for me. He knows everyone in the rooms here. I don't want to say where I am just in case I had a Albuquerque, really, New Mexico. <laughs> I had a really hard weekend and I spent a lot of time with him because my mom wasn't around. He's always been like a buddy more than a dad. I was there late one night and fell asleep on the couch watching TV. Long story short, he made a move on me and I was Step-dad? so Yeah. <gasps> well, bro, like partner of her mother, wow. not legally stepdad, but yeah, uh, I was so lonely that I had sex with him. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Then what happened? I feel horrible for what I did. I would die if my mom found out. I, I don't... think I saw this video <laughs> last week. <laughs> Porn up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't have the greatest relationship with her, but they did help me when I needed help. I've been pretty good about avoiding spending time with them. I've spent holidays at my dad's, etc. but I'm still full of guilt. I haven't even told my... Not, not holidays at her real dad's. Yeah, her real dad's. I haven't even told my sponsor. I've been working through the steps <gasps> pretty slowly, mainly because I'm avoiding my sex inventory. My sponsor knows him really well. <gasps> Do you think I should tell my sponsor even though she knows him? I have no desire to ever tell my mom. Really, I'm okay with having a kind of distant relationship with her, but I need to find a way to block this out somehow. Should I just keep it to myself so the whole thing doesn't explode in my face? I think she should use. <laughs> I, think that, I think that could solve everything. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, she's Evelyn. totally kidding. I don't think she should use. But okay, this is where you, as an advice columnist, well, uh, the, yeah, the very, wow, very, what do you do with this? The kind very of thing? first thing I want to say is fuck that guy because she did already. <laughs> like, don't fuck that guy. But screw him because. He's somebody with a lot of time who's in a position of authority. Just like Louis C.K. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. She's like, he's like Louis C.K. Although it would be less traumatizing to have Louis C.K. pull his dick out than to have your stepdad. What if Louis C.K. is your stepdad? Well, then you're really fucked. I'm sure that's gonna, that could happen. And he's any, coming soon. But anyway, keep going. Um, allegedly. Uh, I think that like what he did is really messed up. And... I mean, I'd like to say that it surprises me, but it doesn't surprise me because just somebody being sober doesn't cure them of their character defects. Certainly I've known not. Look people at me. with really long-term sobriety that still did really fucked up things. And I think that on some level, she's sort of deferring to him because he has a lot of time and because he helped her get into rehab. Deferring and all of to these the things. stepdad. Yeah, deferring to his like sort of position in the recovery community. Almost like if it's okay with him, then maybe it's okay. Right. Like it's okay because he's a priest or yeah. something. I think that right now, like I wouldn't worry about like, let's just set aside telling the mother or anything right now. That's just a disaster waiting to Don't happen. Tell the You're mother. not at a point in your recovery that you could handle that kind of fallout. I think you need to get another sponsor. Definitely. Because it's not the sponsor's fault. She may be a very good sponsor, but it's just not good for you to have a sponsor who's close to this person that you have this fucked up history with. Very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And also, like, and you can't, I mean, like, 
I work a 12 step program. Mm -hmm. I have a sponsor who I count on for a lot of stuff, but he's not, uh, he's no ask Aaron. He's not a, he's not a (laughs) licensed counselor. Neither are you. I'm not either. Take it easy. (laughs) Uh, He's not, but like the sponsor is, is built to take you through the 12 steps. Yes. And I think in this situation, when the sponsor is close to the stepdad, find a sponsor that isn't. Yeah. And if you have to go, like go to women's only meetings, like just, I would try and find meetings that he doesn't go to and to set up your recovery where it exists completely outside of him, especially with online meetings now. I mean, I don't know, are a lot of meetings happening in person or are they still all online? Where I live, they're happening in person, but, uh, and I, I never got anything out of online meetings, Mm -hmm. but that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I know a lot of people that do. I just think that, um, I just mean to open up her possibilities of where she could go to meetings. I don't know how small the town is she lives in or anything, but a hundred percent go to women's meetings. Like get, get, just get away from the possibility that you're going to run into him better that you run into your mother at a meeting than him. Right. Right. And also like, it's a support system thing again, but Mm -hmm. you need to make sure that he's not connected to your support system and that you have to know who your audience is that you could go to with this, that it doesn't blow up in your face. And that's really about just protecting yourself. Yes. And then I don't know, you know what your situation is, but finding a therapist to work through. I know I, I'm like always like find a therapist, find a therapist, but I, you know, I'm not in therapy. Uh Oh, uh Oh, (laughs) really? No. That's well, all right. I'm cured. I, okay. I don't look like a model of mental health to you. <laughs> I mean, I'm 18 years in recovery and I go to therapy. But you, once don't, a go, week. you don't go to meetings. No. And you don't have a sponsor. You no. don't work a 12 step program. I don't work a 12 step program. I do program. all that stuff. Yeah. So maybe between us, there's some sort of like Middle psycho- psychological wellness. I did, wa- I did work wellness. the 12 steps several times. <laughs> right. While you shot heroin. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, no, I worked them sober too. <laughs> but you, but when you actually hit real recovery, you weren't. No, you weren't no, doing but I was step. doing a lot of. I mean, I was looking for like. You don't have to prove help. yourself. You don't yeah, have to prove yeah. yourself to me. No, <laughs> trust me, I'm not trying you to don't prove have to do myself. That. <laughs> but I do think that everyone could benefit from therapy. So you think I need therapy? Yeah. Fuck, I don't want to go to therapy. It would make it'll make you a better parent. It'll make you a better partner. It'll make managing your life easier well, in my opinion we'll see we'll see about all that yeah but this lady that's a spicy meatball i have to say it is, that is a spicy meatball. holy moly yeah but i appreciate that she's willing to bring such an honest question to the table and i think the number one thing is like remember who you are and remember like what the right thing is and just because you did something that wasn't right it doesn't mean you have to keep doing shit that's wrong. And it doesn't define who you are as a person. No, she's fucked. She's as a person. <laughs> no. She's through. She's ruined. Stop. That's it. She was like in early recovery. No, I'm just kidding. I, are you up. kidding? We all do. Yeah. Hor- we all do horrible things. Oh, please. Things. So many no, horrible things. My, my point is not. That was a joke. Right. My point is. He was joking. I was just joking. My point <laughs> is that you don't need to do bad shit anymore either no. just because you did. You no. can do only great stuff and this thing can fade away and you can get past 100%. it. hundred percent. And it can be a wake up call for sort of the types of people you need to surround yourself with in the future. And you know, our families are not always the least toxic place we can go. They're often the most toxic, especially for sex. 
Yeah, yeah, apparently. Wow. I, wait, can I just tell you, like, side note, and we'll read it on another show. It's not the only stepdad question we got. Of course. But the thing about it is... It's but we like, got it from a stepdad. Oh, my God. <laughs> but maybe it was her stepdad. No, no. no Imagine. Was, that would be amazing. It would be amazing. If they amazing. were both dopey listeners. Maybe that would be amazing. <laughs> but listen, if you're out there and you have a step-parent... Don't have sex with them. And if you're yeah. a step-parent, don't, don't have... Don't fuck your step-kid. Don't, I mean, it sounds really <sighs> fancy and, and high-end and it sexy. It does not sound sexy it does, it does. I mean, if, you're, if you watch this pornos, it sounds very <laughs> sexy. And I, I don't want to reveal too much of myself, <laughs> but it's not really like that out there, I don't think. No. So just try to take care of yourself. Nothing that's depicted in porno is really like that out there. No, it's not like that out there. It's... No. So... And if it is like that out there, please send an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Send in a dopey story. Aaron, what a thrill to have you back on the show. It's so much fun. I'm really excited that we're doing this. All right. So at the end of the show, we say uh, stay strong, dopey nation. And toodles for Chris. You can say that. And I say me not say toodles. All right. All right. I'm going to play this song, but only because uh, I think it's going to be really cool.